This episode of Harmonious Gentlemen is brought to you by Blind Man Brewing, makers of craft beer in central Alberta. Say hi to Hans. He once saw Sigur Rós at the Chan Center. Well, if podcast episode numbers were the new age that doctors are recommending all men to have their first colorectal examination, you'd know this has to be episode 45 of The Harmonious Gentleman. And this public health announcement has been brought to you by Chris. And Tyler. And of course, me. Graham? Mm-hmm. Okay. And that, uh, we know it's kind of awkward to talk about, but that is an important uh, service announcement. So thanks, Chris, for that introduction. Yeah. I guess we could have saved it for 50 because that's when doctors used to say to get the test. Really? But now they're saying 45. Oh, okay. So it's more prevalent? I don't know. Go um, see your doctor. Well, we want to start this episode by saying thank you to all our listeners who have supported us um, over the years of recording. And thank you for listening. And also thank you for supporting us financially as we awkwardly requested support <laughs> in our last <laughs> episode. If you missed that, we are doing kind of a spring drive, a little, uh, um, yeah, we awkwardly asked for any kind of support that you could offer just to keep the, the lights on around here. We can, yeah, um, yeah, it costs money to do this. So yeah, thank you for those of you who've contributed. Yeah. And if you haven't, uh, we understand, keep listening, keep enjoying the podcast. It's if you're able to, and you want to, um, only. Yeah, and you can just, I guess we should give a little bit of information about how to do that. You can just send an e-transfer to harmoniousgentleman at gmail.com. Um, we also have PayPal. But that's it. That's all we're going to say about the money part. Okay. Two awkward conversations we've already had on the show. Well, that's okay because it's all going to be worth it coming up here um, oh, yeah. in this episode because, uh, by the way, we, we don't have any time for emails right now. We're going to leave those alone till maybe next time because we have a guest on the episode that I am extremely excited about. Chris, why don't you just uh, tell our listeners how this came about? Uh, often we solicit, we ask our listeners to send uh, emails into the show. Uh, in this case, the show sent an email out because we saw an article and we really liked um, Emma's perspective and the work that she is doing and the perspective that she has. So uh, we took a chance and asked her to engage with us in discussion and she agreed. Yeah. And it's my privilege to introduce her. Um, so she is a assistant professor at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. She has a PhD in communication with a focus in rhetoric, politics, and publics. She is a rhetorician interested in scientific controversies and environmental communication, specifically involving identity, ideologies, and storytelling. Her work explores the intersections of science and religion, the environment and economics, the technical and public spheres, and public memory and identity. She wrote a recent book, Communication Strategies for Engaging Climate Skeptics, which examines the intersection of climate skepticism and Christianity and proposes strategies for engaging climate skeptics in productive conversations. On behalf of the Harmonious Gentleman, I'm extremely excited to introduce... Dr. Emma Francis Bloomfield. Welcome here. Thank you so much. It's really great to be here to talk with you all. Yeah, we're excited that um, I think Chris came across one of your articles and mm -hmm. we just were so pumped as soon as we all read it. We just thought that would be so amazing to talk to you. So we are really excited. 
Well, thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so we're going to start like we normally start with some recommendations. So Emma, if you're game for that, we'd love to hear one from you as well. Definitely. Well, that's exciting. So we'll do a quick break. And uh, what do you think, Tyler? Yeah, let's do it. Hit the jingle. Hit the jingle. So we're going to recommend some things to you. I'm going to recommend a podcast. I mean, I want you to finish ours first before you check this one out. But this is a great podcast. It's humorous. It's short. It's bingeable. It's called Whatever Happened to Pizza at McDonald's. And now that I read that, I feel like I may have recommended it before. But let me know. If you remember me recommending this before, let me know. And let me know if you liked it or not. But it's, a, I think, a hilarious podcast. The episodes are generally really short. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's someone asking the question, whatever happened to Pizza at McDonald's? He does a little bit of investigative journalism. And, yeah, it's great. So check it out if you're looking for a funny podcast. I I have listened to that, and I can mm-hmm. second that. And I've eaten pizza at McDonald's and can say I miss it greatly. So, mm-hmm. And nice. the less you know about it going in, the better, yeah. by yeah. the way. I'm going to recommend some investigative journalism too, but this is a mini series on Hulu if you're in the States and Crave TV in Canada. It's called Sasquatch, and it isn't exactly what you think it is at the beginning, <laughs> but it's uh, journalist David Holthouse is trying to solve a 25-year-old triple homicide in Northern California that appears to be caused by Bigfoot. And it's Hmm. pretty great. So I think it's only three episodes. They're about an hour each. Uh, Sasquatch on Crave or Hulu. You know how most of those true crime stories, they they don't end with an ending that you kind of want? You know, they're usually unsolved. Does this end in a way that you think that's the ending? Uh, there's some resolution, but maybe... Like Sasquatch not, is still out there, basically. Sasquatch is still out there. Yeah. Not the kind of resolution you're hoping for or expecting. <laughs> <That's> scary. <laughs> but yeah. it, it doesn't leave it open-ended. Okay. Awesome. Thanks. And my recommendation is... I feel like we're, we should do the same one, but it's on Crave, and it's called Crime of the Century. And it's a, an also a quite an amazing documentary series. It's a two-parter about pharmaceutical companies... Um, uh, opioids, kind of the history of, of where we got to with fentanyl. It kind of goes back to the beginning and really, really well done. Uh, hard to watch, uh, really difficult topic, difficult to, yeah. I mean, you can probably figure exactly what makes it hard to watch, but it's sort of exposing a lot of stuff that, uh, needs to be exposed, but I don't know what to do with myself when I finish something like that. I don't know mm-hmm. what to do. Yeah, right. You know, it's like we're trusting companies with saving saving the world with their vaccines, but the same companies have done things that are hard to comprehend. And uh, both things can be true, but it's hard to deal with that when you watch it. But Crime of the Century, worth it. Okay. Uh, Emma, what would you like to recommend? Yeah, well, first I'll say I love true crime and documentaries, so I'm going to check all three of those recommendations (laughs) out. (laughs) My recommendation is a book. Uh, I read a lot of books for work. Uh, They're typically scholarly, academic books, but I've been trying to get in in my 2021 New Year's resolution back into reading for fun and reading for pleasure. So I just finished Octavia Butler's book called Fledgling. It's a science fiction fantasy novel about an African-American vampire. 
And Ooh. it's really cool premise, uh, really great character building, just lovely writing. If you need something kind of fun and a little out there, I would definitely recommend it. Yeah, that sounds great. Can you repeat the author? It's Fledgling by... Octavia Butler. Octavia Butler, thanks. Cool. You should cancel my book, Think the Library, and just do that one, Tyler. Okay. Let's forget mine. Yeah, I can only handle one book at a time, so yeah. I'll cancel yours. Put it in your lineup, yeah. 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 Well, thank you. That's, that's awesome. A book recommendation. Um, I think that's good for our, our segment here. Chris? Well, we're really excited to talk to Emma, and I off air or in between segments, I mentioned to her that the harmonious gentlemen are often asking for emails to come to the show, but we wanted to reach out to her because we saw some things that she had written or read some things that she had written, and that caught our attention, and we thought it would be a great fit uh, for the discussions we have here. So we're really, um, really looking forward to this conversation, Emma. Me too. Thank you so much for having me again. So we kind of discovered or heard of um, Emma um, through an article on The Conversation. And it was about her book called Communication Strategies for Engaging Climate Skeptics. And the, the premise of the book seemed to fit in quite well with what we're passionate about here at The Harmonious Gentleman. So like Chris already mentioned, he reached out. Um, so that was kind of where we, we met, um, kind of quote unquote met. Um, but I think it'd be great if you gave us and our listeners an overview of that book, just a little summary. Um, so we know what it's all about and then maybe we'll ask you some questions. Sounds great. Yeah. My book was based off of my dissertation research when I was in graduate school and I've always really been fascinated by how people make sense of the world around them. What tools do they use? What resources do they use? Why do they think the way that they do? And climate change and climate science really became a touch point for me to think about, well, we have all of this science that proves that climate change is really important. And yet a lot of people disagree with it. So what are those moves that people are making to think about the science um, and incorporate it in their own lives? So religion became that sort of framework that I looked at the climate change controversy through. And the book focuses on three different responses that I saw Christians in particular making in response to climate science. So the, the first group that I talk about, I called the separators. And the separators take an oppositional approach to climate science and view it as separate from their faith. The second group is the bargainers. They do more negotiation with, uh, between their faith and climate science. They adopt some tenets and reject others. And then the third group, which I think is caught, what caught y'all's attention, is the harmonizers. And they see climate science and their faith uh, in harmony, in a symphony, uh, in a collaboration. And they see uh, the things that they believe in in the Bible as directly informing environmental advocacy and calling them to be climate advocates. So, so really in the book, I'm trying to say that there, when you say the word Christianity, right? You say the word Christian. There's so much happening there in terms of how people mm -hmm. are thinking about the environment. You can't just think of them as a monolithic group. Same way goes for climate skeptics. People make sense of rejecting climate change in, in very different ways as well. So I wanted to tease out those different relationships and, and hopefully use that uh, typology I created to tease out opportunities for understanding, exchanging information and dialogues around climate change and the environment. Well, that really speaks to us because uh, I don't know if you know much about the province that we live in, 
but we are we like our oil in Alberta, the oil fields, and it's a very conservative province. I think I've heard people call us the Texas of Canada. Uh, I don't I don't know if that's yeah, accurate. Is that probably sum it up well for you? Emma. <laughs> <laughs> and so when we saw your article, it was. I just, I just was thinking like, just teach me the way, like show me how to have these conversations because it's, it's quite a common discussion point in this province. Yeah. I think a lot of people are having conversations right now about climate change, about the environment, and they can be quite tense. They can get very polarized. It's a hard topic to talk about in ways that are harmonious and ways that are civil and ways that are productive where people actually feel like they got something out of the conversation. In your, um, in your article and your book, you talk about, you know, picking a, a, a lot of people and having these conversations and sort of that's your, your method. And I forget how many people you mentioned that you interview, but lots. Um, how did you go about finding those people? And did you sort of seek out the most contentious people to talk to that you could find? How did, how did that come about? Yeah, that's a great question. So I used two strategies primarily. So the, the first was I went on to internet discussion boards that were both Christian discussion boards and discussion boards about the environment. And I just solicited uh, interviews. Mm. Hey, does anyone mm. want to chat with me? Uh, who's a Christian who has an opinion on climate change? And I made it very broad. I was looking for all opinions because uh, some people, I think when they see, oh, this person wants to talk about the environment, they're not interested in me if I'm a climate skeptic. And I had to say, no, I'm really interested in all different perspectives. And then to gain access to the harmonizers, I went to advocacy groups that are specifically environmental advocates um, and Christian groups, and I surveyed their membership. So in total in the book, I have uh, data and interviews from about 100 people, but that's a, a combination of actual interviews, me and them, and a survey response data. Okay. I'm just wondering, Emma, if there's a, a profile or a commonality in the people that you talk to about which groups of people fit into those harmonizers like was it certain denominations was it certain age categories was it uh, a background in a life experience the jobs that those people had any insight into kind of who fit into those categories yeah that's a really great question so in the survey i did ask people for demographic information and denomination race and things like that gender um, and i found the i think one of the most interesting findings is that the harmonizers are extremely diverse uh, we had age ranges from the 20s to 76, right, took the survey, and, and there was a pretty even split um, among gender. Uh, a lot of people who took the survey were white, so I didn't have a lot of racial diversity, but the harmonizers were quite diverse. In terms of the interviews, I let people I interviewed divulge any personal characteristics they wanted. I didn't want giving them a full demographic uh questionnaire to be a condition of having the interview. So I unfortunately don't have a lot of data about what people, right. um, the demographics of people that I interviewed. Some of them I had um, Zoom interviews with, Skype interviews with, so I got to see them. Other people preferred to just do a phone call and other people I just had chat conversations with because they didn't want to uh, talk to me in real time. Well, that sounds really cool. And like, I know you were doing it with uh, kind of research in mind or, or gathering data. But did you, just from having those conversations, um, like, I'm kind of jealous that you got to have all those conversations, I guess, is that it's just, did you get to practice some of the strategies that you were even talking about in the book, like having conversations with this diverse group of people? 
Yes, that's exactly right. And I'll first say that it was really a lot of fun. I think talking to people, hearing their opinions, seeing how they're formulating their ideas about climate changes is really fascinating to me. Uh, but it was an opportunity to engage with people on a variety of different perspectives, perspectives and try to find commonalities in what works, quote unquote. And when I say works, I wasn't trying to persuade people to believe in climate change. My goal in my interviews was to try to keep them engaged in the conversation for as long as possible. So what keeps the conversation going? What keeps the conversation productive? That's why the title of the book is Communication Strategies for Engagement, as opposed to how to persuade climate skeptics to believe <laughs> yeah, yeah. right in climate change. Yeah. So when yeah. I first started interviewing people, it was really um, just trying out things that the theory say works about of how to keep people engaged, but also just treating my conversation partners as people and genuinely asking them questions and being interested in what they were talking about and being interested in their opinions. And then as the conversations went on, I started saying, okay, well, that worked, right? When I talked to this one separator, someone I categorized as a separator before, let me try it again, see if I can push a little farther um, and keep building. So the, the book really is iterative, where the strategies and the ways I talk to people changed as I started doing the research and had more interviews. One thing I wanted to ask you about, uh, you mentioned that using science is a no-go at one point, that using scientific data was like not the way to do it. And that kind of blew my mind a little bit. I'm like, well, how else can you you know, like that's my, that's my thing. And, and I, I, that's what I, my passion is. And I, I found that interesting anyway. Uh, yeah, I like, mention that. I like to say don't rely on the science because mm. I do think that scientific data is important. And if you get people in a conversation and you have a statistic to support what you're saying, absolutely, that can be really convincing for people. But when people say, oh, just give them all the science, just dump the science on them, read out all the stats, that can be very overwhelming for people. And it might give people the impression that you think they aren't intelligent or haven't done their own research. Mm. It's actually a uh, misperception that climate skeptics don't know a lot about climate change. They actually know a lot about climate change because they do their research to be able to argue against mm. people who advocate for climate change. So they mm -hmm. tend to be well-versed in a lot of the links you might send them mm -hmm. or the data that you might share with them, but they still reject it anyway. That's part of what my research is about is that motivated rejection, even though there's science out there, people still decide not to believe in it. So just continuing to repeat mm -hmm. science on them uh, is, is not always, I find, a productive strategy. It can be a bit self-defeating and, mm -hmm. and encourage people to double down on their rejection of climate science. It can be persuasive. My approach to the science is give people links or, or give people opportunities to research on their own so they can convince mm -hmm. themselves looking at the data as opposed to um, someone else giving it to them directly. Thank you. I like that. Yeah. I'm wondering if we should take a break and then kind of take a different tact in the next Sure. Segment. I could just okay? ask questions about this all, all yeah, night. I know. Yeah, we yeah. should do a well, quick break, you, maybe. You should. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Thanks. Well, we'll be right back. So, Emma, we were talking about your findings um, from the research that you did for your book, Communication Strategies for Engaging Climate Skeptics, but you've also looked into a, a number of other areas, and I'm wondering if those categories you have for people would apply in other areas as well. Could it be used when you're talking about politics or 
um, any other type of discussions that you're having with people? In my book, I try to make it very clear that the research that I've done for the book is quite limited to climate change. But in other projects, I have looked at how these categories might translate into other scientific controversies or other topics. In my dissertation work, I applied those three categories to creationism and evolution. So people who reject the science of evolution, creationists, those who negotiate or bargain with uh, creation science and evolution would be intelligent designers, and then people Mm -hmm. who accept uh, the science of evolution. So yeah, I played with those categories a bit in the evolution controversy, but I think we're seeing them unfold right now in terms of COVID. If you think about Mm -hmm. CDC recommendations, some people reject them, right? I don't think they know what they're talking about. I don't trust Dr. Fauci. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do my own thing. They're separating their personal behaviors and identity from those recommendations. You -hmm. see other people bargaining with them. Oh, well, I think the vaccine is good, but I want to wait. I want to delay and see what more studies say. I I Mm -hmm. believe some of it, but not all of it. That's sort of a bargaining type of strategy. And then the harmonizers. I accept this. This is part of my identities. It's part of how I live my life. I trust right, the CDC recommendations. I'm going to get vaccinated. I'm going to follow the policies. That's more of that mm-hmm. harmonizing, accepting that science incorporated into people's everyday lives and people's activities. So while I haven't done extensive research uh, into these typologies, I do see at least an evolution and in, in current COVID conversations, some potential for these strategies, uh, excuse me, for these categories yeah, to be mm-hmm. um, across other topics. And Did, okay, you know, okay. generally, if someone is a harmonizer in one um, kind of area of life, would they be likely a harmonizer in other areas as well? Yes. In my dissertation, I talked about the overlaps between people who were harmonizers on topics of evolution being similarly so on topics of climate change um, and the same tract for separators and bargainers as well. And some groups even explicitly, you might might think it's fairly obvious because some people explicitly say, okay, well, this is how I accept science. So if I accept science in this way on one topic, I'm likely to be consistent and accept it in other ways on other topics. It's not a perfect track, but yeah, I think there's definitely a tendency to see scientific information and react fairly consistently to it. Mm-hmm. Did you see um, the vaccinations skeptics in that movement? Did you see that coming? Did you sort of like predict that as as the as the vaccine was going to be rolled out? Did you, did you sort of think to yourself, "Well, I've sort of seen these groups before. Here it comes," or? Do you think about it much? Oh, absolutely. I think every rhetorician of science saw it coming a mile away. There's been Mm. vaccine skeptical groups in operation since the creation of the first vaccine (laughs) in the late 1800s. It's cyclical. We talk about controversies as being cyclical. There will be sort of a a touchstone or flashpoint. And then um, the opposition emerges uh, quite polarized once again. Something interesting Mm -hmm. about the vaccination controversy is that you get skepticism of science on both conservative and liberal sides, whereas most scientific controversies, the bulk of the skepticism comes from conservative groups or people who are uh, conservative. But for vaccination, Mm -hmm. there's rejection of it for a variety of different beliefs that tracks for um, both liberal and conservative political affiliations. Well, I I was thinking of a follow-up question, but Tyler stole my my last one, which I think um, makes a lot of sense in terms of um, how, how you explain that. I guess I'm wondering, and I don't, I haven't, I was waiting for one of these guys to ask a question <laughs> so I could put my question, uh, my thoughts together. But um, what, I guess, what similarities or likelihood is it that skeptics 
in all these fields um, can be, you know, can your conversation, I guess, what did you find in your conversations that you can give us as tips when we're having these conversations? That took me a long time to get that question out, but what advice would you give us? Yes, absolutely. I have um, a lot of advice in the book and I map the three categories onto specific strategies that in my conversations and in theory will work uh, to engage those different groups in conversations. And then I also uh, extrapolated those out to sort of general conversation strategies on polarized topics. So one thing I think that is really important is to engage in what we call dialogue. Uh, We all think of dialogue very colloquially as two people in a conversation. But when you approach a conversation through a dialogue mindset, it's one of mutual respect. The goal is understanding and cooperation and not persuasion or coercion. You care about the other person, even if you disagree. You separate the disagreement from your mutual respect and care for the other person involved in the conversation. And that itself, I think, is that very harmonious mindset, right? If I'm going to be caring about the person I'm talking with and I have a goal in mind to engage them and to reach mutual understanding with them, it helps conversations flow. The second strategy I propose is asking questions. And that's really because you want to find common ground with the person that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. There is a scholar I cite a lot, and his name is Kenneth Burke. And he talks about even on a battlefield, people at war have found common ground, literally. You had to agree to engage in this battle in order for it even to occur. So even in the most contentious conversations, there's something that you can find in common. And, And that's where... Um, identifying with people, locating shared values. That's where real persuasion or influence takes place because you see yourselves in in the topic of climate change, you see yourselves as potentially both threatened, right? Or both vulnerable um, in this Mm. changing climate. So, so, um, you know, entering the conversation with a dialogue perspective, asking questions and then finding something you have in common, finding something that you share, I think is, is are really important strategies for any conversation. Something that um, I get asked a lot about the book is what surprised you most uh, about talking with people. And when I spoke to climate skeptics, they all told me they cared about the environment. None Mm. of them said, I don't care about the environment. They all Mm. said the environment is really important and valuable. But either they defined the environment differently than, you know, a climate change advocate would or something outranked it. Yes, I care about the environment, but I want to keep my job. Yes, I Mm -hmm. care about the environment, but I'm concerned about the economy, right? Mm -hmm. So it was an issue of prioritizing as opposed to not caring about the environment at all. So I connected with a lot of climate skeptics I spoke to about our mutual love for the outdoors and and traveling Mm -hmm. and being in Mm -hmm. nature in ways that I wasn't expecting. Hmm. Did you find that you got better uh, with those things, you outlined those skills as you went along, like like a skill? Like, Did you find yourself improving in those conversations overall? Yes, I would say practice is definitely something that helps build your confidence uh, in engaging because it can be scary. I'm I'm about to have a conversation with someone I know heavily disagrees with me. So definitely engaging in more conversations builds your confidence. And I think it also uh, builds your attention to details. And, And by that, I mean, someone might say something and then you can say, oh, well, I can connect that to the environment. Mm. I can directly connect that thing that you value to what I really care about in terms of the environment. 
because the environment is, is everything. <laughs> so you get yeah. better, I think, at just making those connections about what shared values mean and, and how something that people care about is ultimately related to the environment. Things like health, mm. uh, things like the economy, right. technology, those are all things that we can inherently link. And for some people, religion, we can all link uh, yeah. to the environment. I think one of the things I'm surprised about in your, you know, just listening to how you went about this is that, um, all those groups of people were interested in having the conversation with you. It wasn't just harmonizers who were willing to talk. And that would be maybe something that I would have assumed. The harmonizers were certainly the most forthcoming and the easiest to Mm -hmm. get access to. And then I would say the second easiest group was climate skeptics that were maybe Mm -hmm. saying, okay, this researcher cares about the environment. I'm going to tell her what I think. Uh, The hardest group, I think, was the bargainers because they are in this lukewarm middle ground. Maybe they haven't really formalized or or they have shifting perspectives. So I think that was harder for people to say, "Okay, I really want to engage in this conversation. It's sort of similar to when I get teaching evaluations. The students who really loved me have thoughts. The students who didn't like me have thoughts. And then the middle ground is is harder to solicit opinions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, that's a good way to think of it. Do you feel like the bargainers are on a path one way or the other, typically? They are, I categorize them as climate skeptics. Yeah, they are not people who are climate advocates, but they might cherry pick or borrow some aspects of climate science to support Mm -hmm. their skepticism. So in the book, I talk about them as potentially being more dangerous. And by dangerous, I mean potentially bigger obstacles to overcome because they seem rational and reasonable because they borrow and twist climate science. The one thought that keeps coming to my mind is that I I love the the heart of all of these strategies and recommendations, but I, I feel like the thought that keeps coming to my head is like, this sounds really hard. Mm. Um, and even the goal or the title of the book is in engagement. It's about engaging and having these conversations, but which I get, but I still feel like is the, um, the big goal of engagement to make everyone into a harmonizer like how do you or is that the goal or how do you avoid that because i i agree and i think our podcast kind of inherently agrees with a lot of those strategies but i still find it really difficult to not have that underlying mo- like goal of influencing someone <laughs> or changing them um so yeah is that part of it or, or is switching that, their type yeah typology yeah, yeah. Yeah, the I think about, I go all the way back to ancient Greece, and I think about Aristotle's original conceptions of rhetoric, and I'll keep this very brief, because I'm sure your listeners are like, oh no, I don't know about this. But <laughs> well, we have the... one, list, one, one re- <laughs> returning guest who would really love it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah? He oh good. <laughs> He's turning up the volume right now. Yeah. So the he, he talks about uh, persuasion is not a, really about controlling the minds of men, which is how Plato talks about Uh, rhetoric. Rhetoric is about doing what's best for the community, both effective and ethical communication. So if you go into a conversation and you think, well, it is best for the community if people believe in climate change, it's best for the community if people get the vaccine, Mm. you can be influencing and persuading, but it's not coercive or unethical. It's because it's towards that more common good. It is hard. Mm. It's, It's absolutely hard. Um, and I think about some conversations I had with climate skeptics who I thought, well, I'll never get them to be tree huggers, right? I would never uh, convince any of them to say they're a climate advocate. 
But what if I can connect with them on the problem of pollution? Could I get them to support a local candidate for office who has a cleanup plan, right? Could I get them to join a church ministry that cleans up parks? There are ways that you can not necessarily convert, right? If you want to use that metaphor, convert convert people to be climate advocates, but you can still make headway um, and have engagement and have, have productive um, movement towards um, environmental advocacy in ways that are more attainable and achievable. So I would call that more of what we would call an instrumental goal. Can you encourage people to do daily things, change things, think about things differently, as opposed to, yeah, we would call a prefigurative goal, which is changing people's identities. And that's that's extremely hard. So if we have that goal in mind, I would say, yeah, it's going to be really difficult and you're going to be disappointed. But if we keep things relatively um, narrow and we have realistic goals about what we might um, achieve in a conversation, then um, I think that's a little bit more successful or, or a more productive mindset. Mm-hmm. Maybe we'll just do a quick pause, uh, gather some thoughts. Thank you again for your, these uh, answers. They are wonderful. Oh, yeah. awesome. Thank yeah. you. Emma, one of the um, categories that you've spent time thinking about, writing about, researching is public memory. And I'm curious, first of all, what actually is public memory? Public memory is about how we in the present remember and make sense of things happening in the past. So even though a memorial or a museum is dedicated to history or something that's happened in the past, walking through those spaces, experiencing those spaces and making sense of them is something that happens in the present. So we call it public memory when we're talking about how these memories or these experiences of the past circulate today and influence how we think about certain topics. And you mentioned earlier, too, how um, the topic of evolution and creation was kind of heavy in that, involved in that. So so you studied that, basically. Yes, that's right. My public memory scholarship has mostly focused on creationism and public memory sites around uh, the creation evolution controversy. So uh, one that I'll mention is from an article I wrote in 2017. It's about the Ark Encounter, which is a life-size Noah's Ark in Kentucky built by Answers in Genesis, which is run by Ken Ham, a creationist apologetics group. And they were the exemplar separator I talked about in my dissertation. And the Ark Encounter is supposed to be this true to history model that you can walk through and experience from Answers in Genesis perspective, how Noah's Ark is actually true um, and how Mm -hmm. it actually occurred. And something interesting about um, that paper is I do link it slightly to climate change because they have an exhibit in the Ark about climate change and about how, well, if science is wrong, about all these things, then they're wrong about all these other things. So that sort of relates to that previous question about do these categories track um, on one another. Did you get to go there? I'm sorry, but before we leave the ARC, did you get to go to the ARC? Yes, I did. I went opening weekend in in 2016. It was packed, absolutely packed. And I walked through the space. And so I critique it as a museum goer, as a visitor to the space. And my experiences walking through it, there's some photos as well in the piece. So if you don't get a chance to go yourselves, you can you get a sneak peek of what it looks like. <laughs> I am so curious. I, I can't imagine. Was it, was it quite impressive at size? Was it, uh, yes. Was it, yeah, it's massive. It's multiple stories and they built it 
with a lot of the materials that you would find you know, in Noah's time. So you wow. don't see a lot of metal. It's a lot of wooden things. Go There's old wood. lanterns. Yeah. Hmm. Puts you back in that mindset. <laughs> no kidding. I yeah. should stop asking about the ark. It's such a, it's such a <laughs> That could be a whole other episode. <laughs> it could be, yeah. Maybe another time. Yeah. And then the second public memory site, I just had an article published this year about the Scopes Monkey Trial Museum, which is in mm. Dayton, Tennessee. And so that was an origin point for uh, debates about teaching evolution in public schools. And so there's a museum in the basement of the courthouse where John Thomas Scopes was tried, uh, dedicated to the memory of the trial. Wow. What what year was that uh, trial? 1925. 25. Okay. So a hundred years later. Still We're still debating it. Yeah. <laughs> those cycles of controversies. Yeah. Well, speaking of evolution, um, another question we had was, do you see with uh, using these categories, people evolving or, or changing or are people pretty stuck in their ways or have you, yeah. Have you investigated that or do you have any thoughts on that? I do think there is generally resistance to people changing their minds. We believe things for a reason and we've come to the things that we believe for a reason. But these categories are by no means static or locked in stone. Uh, Some harmonizers I spoke to for my book used to be separators or climate skeptics. And they told me about their journeys to um, become harmonizers. So a lot of those times, uh, those uh, transitions happen due to personal research delving into a topic, and then interpersonal relationships where people they cared about talked to them um, about climate change. So I do think that encouraging people to do their own research, exchanging resources with people, getting people out of their echo chambers when they only see people who already agree with them, and then leveraging your interpersonal relationships and, and talking to people if you care about climate change, if you care about the environment, why do you care about it? Those can be really productive ways to move people into a harmonizer category. And as I mentioned before, there are ways that even if people don't necessarily shift categories, you can still encourage them to adopt behaviors um, of the other categories as well. So even if you don't uh, fully uh, become a climate change advocate, you might engage in recycling or or do a community activist project. Are you quite um, passionate about climate change in general or was it just an interesting topic for this kind of a study? I am very passionate about uh, climate change and the environment. I was raised vegetarian So I was raised um, caring about animal rights and animal welfare. Um, And of course, things like reducing meat can be uh, very helpful for the environment. But again, I probably won't uh, convince anyone, any of you, right, to completely drop meat. But maybe I could convince you to do meatless Mondays. And then Mm -hmm. even if I haven't totally shifted your perspective, you Mm -hmm. might experiment with ways you can minimize impact in, in small, more manageable ways. So that's kind of my approach is just, well, how can I engage people, see where they're at, and then share with them where I'm at and why I think um, climate change and the environment is important. And those little changes can add up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm wondering if like at a dinner party where people are told not to talk about politics and religion, are you just out there asking all these questions <laughs> and finding out what category everybody's in? And You think I like to stir the pot? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do try to respect people's uh, ground rules. And I think ground rules are really important. If you engage in a conversation with someone and you say, okay, here are the ground rules, right? We're not going to call each other names. We're not going to get emotional. We're not going to do X, Y, Z. I think it's important to stick by those. So yeah, I don't try to uh, 
to stir the pot if I don't <laughs> if I don't have to. But I am genuinely curious about these things. So if sure, someone else yeah. brings it up, I am going to ask questions. You're asking questions, yeah, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. I am. Um, this might not be related to what you've been studying, but how much have you considered? Um, uh, where people get their information from. When you talk about research, people have very different definitions of what it means to do your research. And so there's legitimate scientific journals. There are, you know, social media algorithms. H- how much of that has played into your research? That's a really great question. And I've directly studied that. I have a paper uh, with a colleague of mine at UNLV on climate change misinformation that circulates on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Something that's really difficult about the internet environment is that everything gets filtered. So even if someone eventually links to a scientific publication, it might be through multiple hyperlinks and multiple framings by different audiences. It can change the entirety of the intended message. And people can claim to have science supporting their uh, position when it really doesn't. Um, A lot of these people just repeat information. So we talked about the Facebook group, uh, What's Up With That? And they just repeat to people who have copy and pasted and reposted all their blog posts saying, see, all these people agree with us when it's really just the same content um, over and over again. But that affects the algorithms, how frequently you see that information. And suddenly you go on Facebook and everything you see uh, agrees with you, agrees that climate change is a hoax uh, and isn't important. So I think you're exactly right. Some people will say, oh, I went on Google. I went on YouTube. I went on Facebook. I did my research. And it's very different from uh, in the academic sense how we would think of research. But you can do good quality research online. You just have to be very careful of your sources and you have to read broadly. If you're reading something and everyone agrees with you, I would say there's probably something wrong. (laughs) You need to be reading a variety of different sources and seeing a variety of different opinions uh, to get a broader consensus than just relying on one source. Right. Well, thanks. Yeah. That's something I think about a lot and Mm -hmm. worries me a little bit, I think. It is worrying. Yeah. Like the, the temptation in those conversations would be to present and we mentioned this way at the beginning present them with here's better research here's <laughs> yeah. my research like look at this instead but that's from experience like that's not effective right so you need to you almost need to engage with um and i'm probably this is probably stuff you already said but um asking them questions about that like why do you believe that and, and just engage in conversations about the sources that they trust That's exactly right. I had a conversation recently um, with someone uh, who does not want to get the vaccine, uh, the COVID vaccine, and they shared with me a a YouTube video from um, a comedian about why Mm -hmm. they don't want to get the vaccine. Um, And Mm -hmm. I just said, instead of saying, oh, well, here's the CDC link. I'm sorry about that. Maybe I should start that sentence over. (laughs) No, it's all good. It's our first cat on the show, actually. (laughs) Yeah. No, it's a recurring, our other recurring guest Um, is a cat. (laughs) That's That's right. So instead of saying to them, oh, well, here's a CDC link, don't watch that rubbish YouTube video, I just said, oh, well, why do you trust that person? Mm -hmm. Uh, Do they have some kind of expertise or insight? Uh, Why is it that you think this is a good YouTube video about Mm -hmm. the COVID-19 vaccine? So yeah, Mm -hmm. asking questions can encourage people to kind of critically think themselves instead of you just dismissing uh, the information that's obviously resonated with them. So yeah, you're exactly right, Tyler. Mm -hmm. I find that so hard to do. In, in conversation, yeah. I, I get so emotionally reactive, uh, especially if someone who's close to me, a loved one, brings me something like that. And that, that exact scenario has happened to me. And I find with people that I'm closer to, I have a harder time, <laughs> for some reason, having a measured response. I, I, I kind of jump in quickly and, oh, that's just not, I, uh, yeah, 
I got to improve. But I would, I would go back to my boy Aristotle because he talks <laughs> about pathos as connecting with your audience through emotion as a really important persuasive resource. I think a lot of times people construe emotions as antithetical to logic, but they can actually work together. Hmm. If I Before you asked me if I'm passionate about climate change, I said, yes, I'm so passionate about it. I care about it. That is me engaging my emotions to talk about logically why I trust the science. If you're passionate about something, I care about you. I want you to live. I want you to get this vaccine. That's not necessarily something you should um, strive away from. But I do agree with you that those quick knee-jerk reactions can can get you into trouble um, if you let those kind of take over. Yeah. And recovering is tricky. Yes. <laughs> Once you do it. <laughs> yeah. That's right. It's easier to uh, lose credibility and trust than to gain it. Yes. I'm pretty impressed, though, Emma, with the way that your um, schooling and your research and your passion have come together in a not an evangelical way in in terms of trying to convert people from mm-hmm. one side to another, but rather to engage and to care for people and the environment. Um, and you do that through conversation. That's really impressive. So kudos to you and keep up the great work. Thank you. I'm sure, I did- I'm sure you have haters, but... <laughs> oh, I could I tell know. you some hate mail I get. Yeah. yeah. But a lot, I do a lot, think a lot of people are, are open to it. And some people have said to me, as you've said, wow, you really just want to hear what I think? Thank you. Mm-hmm. People just dismiss me, you know, as a, as a kook or someone who doesn't know what's going on. So even just, you know, um, acknowledging the person um, and humanizing the conversation, I think, can, can get us a lot farther than we might think. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I don't know about you guys, but I, I'm extremely thankful that you decided to talk to us tonight, Emma. Uh, Thank you. I've enjoyed absolutely every part of this. And um, for you to take the time to talk with three random people from Alberta uh, is wonderful. (laughs) Um, That's what I do. I did it for my book a hundred times over. (laughs) Um, And and your book, speaking of like, is that available in stores? Like could people pick it up at like Amazon? It won't be in uh, in stores, but it is available on Amazon and also on Rutledge's website. I recommend grabbing the paperback or the ebook. Uh, the hard copies are mostly for libraries, or you could encourage your local library to order a copy. Yeah. We're all kind of library card holders, and Tyler's our big <laughs> connection to the local library, so I think he's going to be on that. That's a really good idea because... Are you bragging that we have library cards right now? <laughs> no, no, just that, like... No, I'm Tyler impressed. Oft, Tyler often <laughs> is talking about talking up the local library. Yeah. yeah, It's a great resource. So yeah, order anything that you yourself don't personally want to buy or, or can't afford. The library's got you. No, and, we want to do yeah. both. One more time. What's the, the title again, Tyler, of the, of the book? I want to make sure that we say it again. Well, I, know yeah, I can it. say it. Yeah. Communication yeah. Strategies for Engaging Climate Skeptics. Cool. Well, I think I think that's probably enough time uh, to take. Um, so thank you. Tyler usually has a nice closing thought. <laughs> yeah, it usually sounds good. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, thank you so much, Emma, for coming Thank yeah. you. I really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. You all are great to, to talk to. So you're modeling the harmonizing. We're trying to. We should have talked to you first, actually, 44 episodes ago. Yeah, it's true. It would have been better after this one. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you again. Thank you. Yeah. I really appreciate it. Welcome back. Uh, we're going to do our confessions now, and I'm going to start us off. Just once again, though, um, what a great talk with Emma. Mm-hmm. It was so awesome. I want to have her back one day. Yeah, that would be great. 
We should wait, though, like a week or two, right? <laughs> <laughs> Episode 46. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, she uh, wasn't able to stay for confessions, or she didn't want to confess anything on our podcast. But either way, yeah. um, we thank her for her time. I'm going to start with my confession, and it's a, a brief one. Um, it's embarrassing for a couple of reasons, but I bought a video game on Kijiji. Uh, if anyone is aware of uh, the video game, The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, and it's a very critically acclaimed game. I would kind of keep an eye out for it to kind of maybe show my son one day. It's a pretty cool game. I found one for a really good price, almost suspiciously good. Mm-hmm. And I drove to meet this person and I could tell something was kind of weird and it was in the wrong case and it was kind of weird, but I still really wanted it. So I bought it, took it home, played for about five minutes, error message screen, crash my system, rebooted up, same deal. I think it's a corrupted or broken game. Hmm. So my confession number one is I got kind of, you know, ripped off on Kijiji over a video game. But also I do not want to try and contact this person again and fight for my money back because I don't have the energy to do that. Okay, because mm-hmm. I was gonna th- I was thinking your confession would be what happened next. Like you confronted them in a public sphere. It would have been a way better story, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> no, the ending of the story is that I just I just took the loss. You kind of gave up. I just didn't really want to deal with mm-hmm. driving out to I think it was Black Vaults and I just didn't want to do it. So anyway that's disappointing oh, that's for Harvey. Yeah. He'll get over it though. Yeah. Can some? Yeah. I don't know enough about video games. Would it, that would mean it's like like an illegal copy, or it just was a crappy game? It may have just gotten broken in his possession too. Oh, okay. Um, it's it's a game that when you like, it's never gone down in price. Like it's a full price. It was really cheap. What platform is it for? Uh, it's Switch, Nintendo Switch. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of a cool game to play with Harvey. I thought, but uh, yeah. maybe one day. My confession is from much earlier in my life. I'm not really embarrassed about it, but it was something I shouldn't have done, and probably my parents should should have stopped me. My brother Andrew and I would uh, run up and down the aisles of the meat department in Safeway, and for whatever reason, we thought it was fun to push our fingers through the styrofoam or the cellophane wrapper wrapping of oh. the meat. <laughs> so we would just like push our finger till we popped through and squished into like hamburger or a steak or but an. My memory, and maybe Andrew can help me with this because sometimes we joke about our memories kind of becoming public or conjoined almost, that we would like pop every package as we walked Wow! down. Like I probably destroyed thousands of dollars or worth of meat and or gave people botulism. So if listeners, that's who you, I apologize. <laughs> well, another reason why we should stop eating meat or cut down on meat intake like Emma talked about. Yeah, yeah, like not to blame my parents, but why were they just letting me run up and down the meat aisle? It was a different time back then. <laughs> back in the 50s or back what the, was yeah, it? No. Yeah, that's, that's a good confession. Or uh, I yeah, kind of just thought of it the other confession. day. Yeah. You should feel bad about that. Yeah, no, I do. But you feel better now. Yeah. yeah. And you, just for you the know. record, you don't do that anymore. Um, Shanna never lets me out of her sight at Safeway, so <laughs> I can't, even if I wanted to. Like, this isn't my confession, but it probably would feel good. Like, mm-hmm. just satisfying to press and then... Okay, all through. I'm saying is, try <laughs> it. <laughs> like, even just do with one you bought. Yeah. Sure. Bring it home and yeah. open your package that I way. think I used to squeeze the buns in the bakery <laughs> yes, section. In the... I think. In the produce section. I mean, bakery. Okay. Right. Hey, Tyler, what's up? <laughs> um, well, my confession is directly related to our last episode which was about regret. And 
I kind of took the lead on a few segments and one kind of technique that we tried was to have everyone write down their definition of regret before we shared that. Yeah. It was very effective as I remember. Yeah. And I think it worked well, but I, what I've been having some guilt about over the last um, little while is that I didn't give credit to where I got that idea from. I just kind of said, I've got this new idea. Here's what we're going to do. Um, but that idea actually came from um, a podcast. And I don't know if she came up with it, but this is where I learned about it from Brene Brown's mm. um, podcast. And she had actually also talked about regret on that same episode. So I feel like I had plagiarized without giving credit to um, my source. So I'm doing that now. So thank you, Brene Brown, for some great ideas and talking points that we used in our last episode. So and both you, just to be clear, you copied both the topic and the activity. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> From and another some, podcast. And anything that I said that people were like, wow, that was, that's, that was smart, Tyler. It yeah. was probably not my own original thought. So, um, yeah, just confessing that. And a second part to it, I guess, is that I wanted to give credit um, to her mm. and to that podcast, but I just couldn't think of her name for the whole episode. <laughs> and I was too mm. like, it was awkward to bring it up and try to talk through it. So, well, well, Brené, if you're listening, Graham and I both know who you are mm-hmm. and we never would have stolen your idea. <laughs> no. <laughs> Thanks, Al. You've made, you, you made it right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I think that brings us to the end of our episode. And Chris, if someone wants to get in touch with the show, what are they going to do? Yeah, there's another number of ways you can do that. One would be on um, our social media platforms, Instagram and as well as Twitter at Harmonious Gents. And you can do it on Facebook as well if you just type in Harmonious Gentlemen. It's as easy as that. Learning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 That's right. And don't forget about our spring drive if you want to support us and um, fund, give us a little beer fund or a microphone fund feel free to share with us. I was talking with someone about that who expressed interest in helping, but they mentioned they were a little embarrassed about the amount. They said, you know, would would five, like, is it embarrassing to give a low amount? And I said, of course not. It's a it's a gesture. Yeah. Uh, so don't worry about that if that's your issue. Right. Good point. Yeah. Maybe I should also mention that if you wanted to follow Dr. Emma Francis Bloomfield on Twitter, her handle is at D-R-E-F-B-1, at Dr. E-F-B-1. And she's a great follow on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And keep an eye out on our, our social media for uh, other links to things that she's written and, and done. Because we'll definitely be promoting her work. Yeah, I might try and find that book. Yeah. Be really great, a great read. I think or, we, we read the articles, but we haven't, none of us have actually read the book. So Maybe by then the book's available in your library. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Chris works as magic. <laughs> and All right. Graham, you had something you wanted to, to promote, but I don't think you have yet today. Yeah, so tucked in at the very end of the episode that no one will listen to. Uh, no, it's it's. I'm just kidding. Um, yes, I had a, a band in college. I mentioned on the show a few times, Bent Roads Tavern, and we've been working on some re-recordings lately, just kind of online over this past year. And we have released our, our first sort of re-recorded song on Spotify and iTunes and stuff. So it's called Let's Go to Newfoundland. And uh, I'm pretty proud of it, actually. So go have a listen if you got a few minutes. It's a little ditty about traveling to the East Coast. Oh, hmm. Yeah, despite the title. What do you mean? (laughs) (laughs) It's clever that way. (laughs) All right, I think it's time to go. Thank you to Emma, and uh, see you next time. On the Harmonious Gentleman.
Yep. Harmonious gentlemen.